Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to a special feature-length interview episode of the Inside China podcast. My name is Xin Mei Shen. I'm a tech reporter here at the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong, and you're listening to a special short series of episodes coming to you in the week that the Hong Kong Securities and Futures Commission opens up licensing for crypto exchanges, meaning that it will officially legalize retail investment in cryptocurrency. You're about to hear an in-depth interview with Neil Tan, chairman of the FinTech Association here in Hong Kong, but also someone whose background with blockchain development in mainland China gives him a very broad perspective on what happens next as Hong Kong seeks to evolve its image as a traditional center for finance into a new global center for regulated cryptocurrency. He's speaking with my colleague Jared Walt, podcast editor for the South China Morning Post. Here's what he has to say. Neil Tan is the chairman of the FinTech Association of Hong Kong, but it's fair to say that he's much more than that. He has tremendous experience in the development of blockchain, both in Hong Kong and mainland China. Neil Tan, thank you for your time. Thanks a lot. What's your forecast for the weeks following June the 1st? How many crypto licenses will be issued? What kinds of response do you think we will see? Yeah, so I think um, if we kind of take a look at it, uh, pulling it all the way back to 30,000 foot level, essentially you've already got a untapped demand inside of this whole space. Uh, we've seen a number of different platforms already express interest inside of it. Uh, folks like OKX, Huobi is inside of that. Uh, DBS, who's TradeFi, uh, also interested in coming from Singapore to Hong Kong to apply for that license as well as some of the outliers like uh, Greenland Holdings, which is a, a SOE, essentially a state-owned enterprise based out of mainland China and inside of the real estate space. So I think the line has already begun to assemble, if you will. Um, ultimately, it just kind of depends on how these people are qualified. Uh, but for sure, there's a huge line uh, already in place right now. So yeah, It's not so much the elephant in the room as the recent memory people would have, global news coverage of Hong Kong and cryptocurrency is most closely associated with FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried, otherwise referred to as SBF right. uh, in crypto circles. How, how does the industry rebuild its reputation and trust? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, obviously it started actually earlier than that. I mean, I think crypto in of itself, whether you're talking about Three Arrows Capital, where you're talking about Terra, whether you're talking about Celsius and so forth, there's been a lot of bad news inside of crypto. And this was kind of like the cherry on top, unfortunately. Um, how does the industry rebuild? Well, I think really inside of the context of the regulatory environment, that's kind of like a starting point, if you will, right? And having a robust uh, regulatory framework inside, that's really what Hong Kong is actually positioned to try to do here. Uh, we've had the benefit of actually seeing from other jurisdictions 
what the possibilities or what are sort of the, the upsides and the downsides, advantage, disadvantages of different regulatory frameworks. So studying folks like the states, Dubai, others, and so, so forth, and what sort of bad sort of scenarios came out of those, I think those are very much uh, particular lessons learned that Hong Kong has taken away from that. Now, in that context, I would say having that robust framework, having the KYC in place, um, AML or anti-money laundering, anti-terrorist and those different uh, uh, provisions is crucial. But um, if we look at that entire gamut of uh, framework, that's only on the law, on the legal side. But it comes down to enforcement, right? And, you know, we can talk about uh, having the laws in place, but if there's no enforcement or if there's no deterrence, there's always going to be bad actors, right? And how do you enforce it? That's going to be a crucial piece. I think uh, that's number one. So the overarching, I would always say, is like at the top side is really the, the regulatory compliance and the legal law uh, in, ter in place in that jurisdiction. But also, I think inside of Web3, we're looking at a lot of things that are blockchain-based, and how do we leverage that type of technology, right, when we talk about blockchain? And you're talking about transparency, you're talking about an immutable ledger, you're talking about smart contracts, um, when we talk about code is law, <laughs> exactly, so law on the bottom side, when you're talking about the critical infrastructure and leveraging blockchain, this is key, right, and how to leverage that. And I think SFC has recognized that as well. They've also talked about implementation of smart contracts, uh, particularly inside of auditing. Uh, when you talk about auditing, probably the first thing that you think about is proof of reserves, um, but also proof of liabilities and things like that, because ultimately we need full transparency. But leveraging that type of technology, not just as an asset class, not just trading it on the exchange, but how do you leverage the technology to make the exchange even more efficient, more transparent, more credible, uh, I think that's crucial. And, of course, everybody has to talk about it. Artificial intelligence, right? <laughs> right? Everybody has to say, like, oh, you know, ChatGPT or some use of AIML. Uh, this is crucial, of course, in terms of looking at the regulatory framework, identifying fraud, uh, looking at ir irregularities inside of the market, m market manipulation, and so on and so forth, this is where the AIML can actually be implemented as well. So I would say, of course, at the top side, you know, RNC regulatory compliance, legal. At the bottom side, the leveraging the technology of blockchain, AI, and other general purpose technologies or GPTs is crucial to make this a more robust um, sort of uh, industry in the future. So. You've been following the build-up to this moment, June the 1st, uh, where Hong Kong you know, officially begins licensing crypto, but we've really only been talking about AI, generative AI, in the last few months. How much has that changed the game? You've been following this discussion for, for years up to this point, and in the last five months, can you give us an idea how AI, generative AI, has changed the game? Absolutely. So, like I was talking about earlier, I mean, the implementation is being adopted of AI and ML across the board, doesn't matter which industry, doesn't matter which sector, doesn't matter which company, even individuals and platforms. And I've seen it inside of FinTech uh, here in Hong Kong. 
people are adapting it for, let's say, loan applications and so forth. How do you populate the, if you're applying for 10 different loans versus like, you know, getting through one is already difficult enough. How do you apply that type of technology? So people are actively trying to look at their existing business models to identify opportunities where it can be implemented, where it could improve the efficiency, where it could lower cost and overhead. Um, And that will not be limited to just certain sectors, it's going to definitely be inside of Web3. Um, and people are already talking about that combination. Uh, so there's an article that came out from Binance that talked about this combination of blockchain and AI and what are potential use cases inside of it. And it it's, runs through the entire gamut of onboarding, you know, monitoring, all the way on through transactions on the blockchain and analytics and all through there. So I think there is going to be huge, huge transformation on that front. Uh, and that type of implementation is just uh, right now at the at the very starting point right now. So, yeah. Now, Neil, you mentioned Greenland, uh, this particular company from mainland China. Given your experience in the blockchain development in mainland China, what is your forecast for how Hong Kong's regulatory changes will be received by mainland investors? Yeah, I think if we kind of pull it all the way back to 30,000 foot level, back in the day, um, you know, in 2015, 16, 17, a lot of the actual crypto projects were originating out of China. And China actually minted multiple millionaires and even billionaires out of that. Uh, with the ban of crypto inside of China, what ended up happening is is that I call it the Chinese diaspora or crypto diaspora. And essentially, a lot of those people, projects and platforms ended up migrating to Hong Kong as one place and then beyond that to other places in Southeast Asia, to the Middle East, to the States and so forth. And that's where the connectivity to the Chinese ecosystem or Chinese crypto ecosystem begins. Um, I would say that as far as in uh, the future holds, you're already seeing it today. People like Huobi, which is Chinese-backed, uh, OKX, also the same. A lot of these different players are coming back to Hong Kong in that sense and uh, raising their hand for the license. And whether or not they get it, that's another story. But, you know, that that's, uh, bodes well for Hong Kong to have them almost like a homecoming, if you will, to home base of uh, Hong Kong as a crypto center. And can you speak to the involvement of, you know, Greenland Holdings, this very large real estate-based uh, company, and, you know, even the People's Bank of Communications, mm. both here in Hong Kong, getting involved in this? Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that inside of the context of this uh, virtual asset trading platform license, you will see many, many different players come into the space. It's just another opportunity for them to diversify their existing business. I think Greenland does not have any pre-existing business inside of crypto or digital assets today. However, inside of China, when I was doing different things inside of China, deploying NFTs, gaming, and metaverse projects, essentially a lot of the real estate companies are obviously in a lot of pain, right? And they are looking at different angles to leverage Web3 to diversify both in terms of ownership, both in terms of marketing and PR and so on and so forth, leveraging Web3, NFTs, and those different types of products or digital assets for their um, business purposes for their core business. So I do see a little bit of an angle there. Um, Having said that, like I said, there's going to be a lot of diversified players. Um, Even if we take a look back at the virtual banking licenses that Hong Kong issued, 
Uh, I think there were about eight different licenses that were issued out of 28 applicants. Um, and it was across the board. You would see insurers, you would see real estate, you would see folks like Dairy Farm apply, right? So I, I don't think that it's limited to a certain set of profiles. It's across the board. It just comes down to what are the potential use cases are there? What sort of propositions can they present? Uh, back in the virtual banking days, it was payments, lending, wealth, insurance. But what was the user base, right? And that's where these other players are coming in. And what about local slash international banks like HSBC? Are they on board with these new policies in Hong Kong? Do you think they will get involved? You know, having come from HSBC myself originally, I was in the digital partnerships and innovation team. I think that they are definitely interested in this area. Uh, they are actively developing their blockchain capabilities. They've also gone into purchasing real estate, I think, inside of the sandbox and also in the process of developing it. As far as NFTs are concerned, they've actually had different offerings. Of course, those are what they call as neutered NFTs, i.e. you cannot trade them. So in that sense, they are involved. Uh, will they go all the way to apply for a license? I'm not sure, uh, but it's anyone's guess, really. Having said that, I think uh, on April 28th, the government has also brought the teams together, or all the different incumbent banks, to tell them the biggest major problem is access to banking services for a lot of these uh, virtual asset trading platform uh, players and also the rest of the ecosystem. The truth is, is that uh, blockchain, I applied for about 15 to 20 different banks, rejected by all of them. And ultimately, there is a misunderstanding or a miscommunication in terms of the enforcement and blockchain crypto and so forth and the demarcation between technology and the asset class. Now that these different uh, platforms are coming into play, the banks will need to support that. Otherwise, without banking services, uh, you know, you may as well just shut down the exchange or not even issue the licenses, right? So I think the government recognizes this major problem and has already issued their guidance on that. Whether the banks follow suit, that's a different story. But um, yeah, at least the guidance is there. The headlines on June the 1st will be mostly be about the access to retail crypto investment, but you've previously been quoted as saying Hong Kong's regulatory changes will attract more talent to work on the back end. Can you explain more of what this means, the back end of crypto? Yeah, absolutely. I think when you talk about the back end, it's, um, you know, essentially inside of banking, there's always front, middle, and back. Um, in that sense, front end is client-facing, back end is both, both the infrastructure and all of that that comes behind it, the platform to support the services there. So if we talk about the back end in this context, it's actually no different than any other banking services or financial services uh, in terms of um, you know settlement, custody, and all those different things. Um, ultimately, when I look at this area, it's already happening. Um, so inside of the membership base of FinTech Association, there are different vendors that are providing different services. It could be um, anti-money laundering services, reg tech, wealth tech, insure tech, so on and so forth, different types of technologies that support the back end. Uh, I was talking with one of our existing uh, members, and he said, you know, on an average year, we're supporting two to three different cases at a go. Uh, right now, I'm up to 10. <laughs> and so there's a huge influx of people that are trying to support this back end uh, and with all of these different players that are trying to apply for the, the license. And 
it's the same thing for virtual banking licenses. Uh, what the requirement was is that they literally had to have, when they go and apply for this, they have to have the different ROs in place, they have to have the teams in place, the regulatory compliance, the legal, so on and so forth. All the all those folks have to be in place, and they also have to identify how they're going to build out the stack, so the tech stack. Uh, the entire platform has to be explained to the regulator. Otherwise, it's like, you know, I have a drawing of a car, but I don't know how to make a car kind of thing, right? So I think ultimately, all of those things in the back end need to be explained. And generally speaking, a platform doing all those things on their own is very, very unlikely. Of course, there's different players that are already in the marketplace that are either doing it themselves and they can bring that technology in, but very likely that there's different vendors that are operating internationally that they can bring into Hong Kong to deploy. So when I talk about the back end, it's all those different infrastructure to deliver that type of service in the context of regulatory compliance. And those people are already having a backlog. And I'm sure also inside of the consulting field, there's generally speaking, whether it's big four or other consulting firms that are supporting the activities of applying for these licenses, those people are also backlogged. So I think ultimately that bodes well for Hong Kong because obviously net positive in terms of employment, in terms of empl uh, opportunities for other individuals to career advancement that are interested inside of Web3 or this uh, virtual asset space. It's interesting you mentioned the talent that will need to come to Hong Kong. You know, after mainland China banned criminalized crypto and Bitcoin mining, as you referred to, a, a lot of talent and money moved to both Dubai and Singapore. How do you compare the Hong Kong regulatory environment? How does Hong Kong compete for talent and investment against these, these two other centers? So in the FinTech Association, we actually had a response to the consultation. So the 361-page consultation that was issued earlier. And we had about 30 to 35 members participate in that response. So in that context, we had four law firms. So we had subject matter experts go question by question. We're not having a general view on it, right? We had like a specific person that is an expert inside of crypto insurance looking at the provision for insurance, right? And so I would say that if we look at that, the overarching theme inside of the FinTech Association is how do we, of course, ensure that the regulatory compliance piece uh, it has investor protection and so forth, but how do we ensure that Hong Kong maintains competitiveness? Commercialization, right? This is also a key eye that we also lent inside of the response. So I think this is key. Number one is obviously who is doing retail today, right? And, you know, there's only one person or, or one jurisdiction at this point that is actively going into this particular area. And I think that's a probably like, 80-20 rule right there, to have that product or service available to the consumer is already one of the biggest hurdles that you could ever cross. Of course, you know, inside of the regulatory framework, we've learned our lessons uh, from different jurisdictions. We've tried to adapt some of that and make it more commercial, much more uh, friendly in that sense. Uh, I think that's kind of a key aspect of what they've done at the SFC. And ultimately, I think bringing the right people to the table and uh, the ecosystem to the table, this is how we are going to compete. And I think that that bodes well for Hong Kong because, you know, aside from being a, 
International Financial Center. I mean, we're we're number one in seven out of the ten years in terms of IPOs, in, ser- in terms of so very strong capital markets, in terms of uh, assets under management, uh, roughly four point five to five trillion U.S. dollars. Uh, so if you kind of think about it, when you talk about allocation, four point five trillion, and let's say one percent gets allocated to crypto. You can imagine the size of the opportunity there. If you're talking about uh, liquidity as a capital markets, this is the place to be if you're talking about who's number one, right? That type of thing. So I think that's number one as far as the, the context of how do we compete. Number one is being an IFC with the AUM and the, with the distribution and the allocations. Number two is, is that Hong Kong has been chartered by uh, China to become a arts and cultural center. Uh, you and I know about West Kowloon, uh, you know, M+, uh, which is essentially the Met for China. Um, we both know about the National Palace Museum. Both of these were not an accident. It's an actual development program to make Hong Kong an arts and cultural center. And the third piece in terms of competition is really the public and private sector that supports the entire ecosystem of Web3. And, you know, you've got folks that are inside of Cyberport. You've got people that Hong Kong uh, Science and Technology Park that are doing a lot of different startups and so forth. There's other private startups or incubators and accelerators inside of that. But there's also Invest Hong Kong, FSTB, and everybody is trying to help out in this area. Uh, there's also a program called Oasis that's also d- encouraging different strategic uh, commercial enterprises to come into Hong Kong. Aside from that, I think from the private sector, you've got a very robust Web3 ecosystem championed by a global champion called Animoca Brands, right? So I think number one, IFC, number two, arts and cultural center, and number three is this public and private sector support that comes in. And that's how we're going to compete inside of this space. Hopefully that bodes well for Hong Kong and the rest of the ecosystem. That's a conclusive answer. Thank you very much. Let me finish up here with, will we see Bitcoin mining in Hong Kong? Very interesting question. I think, first off, I think if you kind of think about it, what are the sort of the elements that are required to operate a Bitcoin mining operation is obviously a lot of the hardware, the software, the services, uh, all the different solutions. But the infrastructure is beyond that. It's the real estate cost. It's the electricity cost all those different things. Um, I, would, I would think that there are some significant challenges in that sense, uh, but you never know, right? I mean, if, uh, you know, if you think about it, back in the day, uh, you know, there were different um, you know, data centers on the uh, new territory side that was doing this. Uh, ultimately, once Bitcoin came down, it's the equivalent to oil, right? The oil price popped everybody wanted to go into you know um you know basically drilling for oil and that's where fracking came from and so forth right everybody wanted to go in there but then as the price went down then of course a lot of people the infrastructure was just too high for them to compete and in fact a number of different miners were potentially going bankrupt at that point so you you went from you know, folks like Bitmain that were thinking about IPOing at one point in Hong Kong, all the way down to some people actually having a pretty bad beat in terms of 
their uh, cost uh, profile and potentially bankruptcy, right? So I think it uh, depends on the commodity, the, the fluctuation in terms of Bitcoin price. I think it also depends on the cost of the infrastructure. Uh, so yeah, I, I will say never, never say never, but you know, at this point, it's unlikely that it has the right characteristics to support this at least long term. There's a lot to look forward to the next couple of weeks. Neil Tan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Jared. It's a pleasure being here. That's all for this episode of Inside China. Keep in mind that this is one of three special episodes we're producing this week in the lead up to Hong Kong's new crypto licensing era. Don't forget, you'll get all the latest news and all the best analysis at scmp.com. My name is Xin Mei Shen. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.